concerning the providence of God. And I'll sum that up as to what it means in a minute. It's a little much. Bob. Um, two, two things are on my mind by way of introduction before I pray and get into the meat of the matter. One is to read a text from Jeremiah, which I'm reading from my devotions right now, and the other is to tell you a story from lunch today with some pastors that I had. The text is the last verse of Jeremiah 14, which says, Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Art thou not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on thee, for thou doest all these things. Couple of things. Even when he poses the question, well, first he poses the question, are there any gods who can bring rain? And his answer is no. Second question she asks is, can the heavens give showers? Well, scientifically, surely everyone would say, sure, where else does rain come from? But the clouds, the heavens, the sky, that's what it means. And he, he's so pressing the issue as to say, well, sure, rain falls out of clouds. We all know that. They, they, they didn't have a scientific worldview, but they knew when it got dark overhead and rain came down, so it's obvious when it's blue, it doesn't rain, and when it's dark and gray, it rains. And so they knew where it came from. It came out of those big bundly clouds up there somehow. And he says, nope, it's not, that's not where it comes from comes from God. God makes it rain. And there is no rain apart from the will of God. That's the first observation. And the second observation is uh, we set our hope on thee. Another thought comes to my mind before I tell you the story of noon today. When I went to speak at the Providence Conference in Grand Rapids two, three weeks ago, whenever it was, R.C. Sproul was speaking, and when R.C. Sproul speaks, that's a tongue twister, when R.C. Sproul speaks <laughs> by the seashore, um, when he speaks, my heart gen generally burns within me, especially if he takes a text like he did a couple of times, and unpacks it. And he, he commented that he watched on TV the Civil War series. Did some of you see that? I, I did not see it, but it was well, a whole bunch of sessions on the Civil War. And he said what struck him as this man did this meticulous research is that when you listened or when you read the correspondence from the soldiers home, now this is 130 years ago, 35 years ago, and he was pointing out how dramatically different the mindset in America is today than 100, just 135 years ago. He said what almost all the letters would say 
from the front lines were today providence protected me tomorrow it may be that providence will take me home the word providence was everywhere in these religious boys letters as they sent them home to mom or aunt or dad or whoever and they they had no doubt who would control whether they got hit by one of those balls and dropped dead it was the bloodiest war we've ever known it was a horrible war and and the fighters in it knew that providence so providence was woven into the minds 135 years ago of all 18 year olds it was on their lips if they were to speak about their destiny and whether they live through this battle tomorrow they used the word providence capital p and they meant god's reign over cannonballs and today it's a gone it, it, the word is gone nobody uses the word providence today good luck even christians say good luck and and every manner of thing except today, providence. I'll give you some biblical illustrations of that as we move on tonight. But I just remind that was a very powerful illustration. And he was just dramatically illustrating the milieu in which we live out our Christian life today. David Livingston and I, driving back from this pastor's things today, were, were talking about, we, we were saying, why? In the first three centuries of the Christian era, did the gospel and the Christian church explode in a new age environment of cultural diversity with a vengeance? Why? Why? And today, we wring our hands and say, oh, there's no Christian consensus in America anymore. And, oh, we've lost our Christian nation and New Age is taking over and diversity is everywhere and you've got to respect everybody's religion. All we're doing is recreating the first century. That's all we're doing. And the gospel spread like wildfire. It exploded. Within 300 years, it was the empire religion from nothing. Why? How did they then live? What were their priorities? What were their passions? So, providence is gone. It's gone out of our minds. It's gone out of our vocabulary. Uh, soldiers today, when they write back from the Mideast, they don't, they don't write back about providence. But take heart. Um, if... Christ could triumph in the paganism of the Roman world with its gods. And Paul walks into Athens, there's so many gods, he can't even count them. They have, they get so many gods, they got a god to, a nameless god, just in case they miss one. That's the milieu in which he lived, and increasingly, that's the milieu in which we live. And so, if God wants to get glory, maybe he's just going to recreate the first century and then and then turn up the heat of Christian passion. Now, the, the thing that happened at the luncheon today, <clears throat> do any of you, did any of you graduate from Bethel 20 years ago this year and attend your reunion last weekend? Well, you could tell the story if you did. 
but I got it secondhand. Well, the, Carrie Olson, the pastor down at, uh, down at uh, Bur uh, Bloomington Baptist, if any of you live down in Bloomington, it's too far to drive, go to Carrie's church. Get the same theology, and he's a great, great preacher. Um, he said that he was at this meeting, and uh, one of his classmates is Marshall Shelley. Marshall Shelley is now one of the vice presidents for Christianity Today and oversees Leadership Magazine and Partnership Magazine and Christianity Today and the new one that they're putting out now, Books and Culture, and his big wig down there. And uh, Marshall has suffered a lot. He, he had a, a child born who was profoundly disabled and lived two years and died. And then he had a child that lived two minutes and died. Same as some of the people in this church. Mullen Marshall's written about it. And he, he was standing up. They, they just asked him, stand up and tell us a word, Marshall. And they didn't know what they were going to get. And Carrie said, it was the most profound moment at a reunion you've ever been to. Noel's told me some profound moments at reunions that she's had. It's funny. There's these things that go on in people when they go to 20 and 25 and 30 year reunions and, they, and they're asked to just say something about life. So different than when you were 18, you know. Um, but what he said was, life is hard, God is good. Life is hard, God is good. And then he told the story of this little two-minute baby. And I read the article about three years ago and it just came back like a, Thing. I said, I've got to get this article for some families in our church because I remember he was wrestling with, why would God design a baby to live for two minutes? You see, Shelley, Marshall Shelley didn't even ask the question whether God did it. Marshall is just so saturated with the sovereignty of God, he asked the next question. Why would God design a baby to live for two minutes? And the answer he gave was, he didn't. He designed him to live forever. And two minutes is not that much different from 70 years when you consider forever. Now think on that. Just think on that. We don't believe in eternity most of the time when we're murmuring about why we lose this or that. Two seconds is not much different. I mean, picture the width of this building as eternity. Okay? If this eternity this this right here is seventy years and this is two seconds. Just think on it. God didn't create that baby to live for two seconds. Well, that's one answer. And there are there are others. There are others. This life, folks, is not the main thing. This is not the main thing. This is preparation, testing ground, laying up. What did Jesus say? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He, he, he talked like you've got a few years to invest. Invest right. Because then you spend. And we, we got a totally different mindset. We got 70 years to spend, and then it's over. We really need to listen to Marshall. We need to listen to people like that. Well, let me pray, 
and we'll get into tonight's focus. Oh, Father in heaven, I know, I know that when I say this, there's some incredibly raw nerves that could hear it and feel it as very painful. But Lord, I pray that in all tenderness and in all meekness and with all hugging and all caring, we might believe the biblical view of life. I pray that those suffering most among us would become our best teachers, as many of them have. And I pray that you would sanctify to us our deepest distress and make us ask Marshall's question, even if we can't answer it, rather than asking an atheistic question. Help us to ask his question. Why would God design my baby to live for two minutes? Why would God design my baby to live for two years? And then look for biblical answers and live with them in peace. Oh, Lord God, we want to be a biblical people. We want to be a loving people. We want to be a strong people. And we want to commend the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of everybody that we meet. Help us, I pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Two announcements. Um, let's see here. Verna Erickson. Are you here, Verna? There you are. I want, to t I want to say a word about your transportation. Verna works, lives here, down the street, and works over near Como Park, and she's got a transportation problem. The buses aren't running, and some of our people depend on buses. And what a great opportunity for the body to become the body when uh, the government ceases to do its part, or the MTC. So, there's a clipboard on the information table out there, and David Michael has been thinking this through, and Verna's got her mornings taken care of. Is that right, Verna? But the afternoons, go next, starting next week, can be a problem. If the, the, the last bus strike was 26 days. <laughs> I think you're very fortunate not to have a car, frankly. Although, except at times like this, you're right. Um, so anyway, we'll help Verna and others. So if, if you would perhaps be able to do something in an afternoon, you could put your name out there or talk to David and Michael. Uh, and we've got a general sheet out there that others in our church, we just got a call today. I, I've, I've got to be someplace. This is, this is Bethlehem people now we're talking about by such and such, and I've depended on the bus and all my plans have fallen through. Can you help? Well, what a great way to be the body of Christ. So, uh, if you, you know, just want to say, well, there might be some free hours in my day, give me a call. So if you want to be that kind of general, give me a call person, then put your name on the other sheet over there on the information table across the commons. That's announcement number one. Announcement number two is that next Wednesday night is the all-church strategy meeting instead of this session. So if you're a member, I hope you'll come back. You're welcome back if you're not a member, but it'll be uh, of, of less interest to you probably if you're not a member. So we do not do this study next week. We rather do the business of the, of the church. Okay, now we're going to do some...
review for a few minutes and then we're going to dig into the inanimate objects or the weather and things like that that God is providentially in charge of. You got it? See that? That's not going to show up very well. You're going to think your camera's out of focus there. Uh, there we go. is review. Review. Here's what we've seen. The origin of the word providence, providence. We've seen that and suggested that it points to God's seeing to, seeing to, pro to, video, seeing to the universe. I'll see to that. God sees to the universe. Some definitions of providence, for example, we've seen those. For example, one of the best comes from the 27th question of the Heidelberg Catechism. The providence of God is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance. R.C. Sproul's newest book is called, no, second newest book is called Not a Chance. Not a Chance, meaning it uh, doesn't exist. Chance does not exist the way it... He, he told the story of talking to one erudite professor who said, I, I think things just happen by chance. And, and R.C. Sproul said, what's that? And said, well, just chance. Just, just chance. Well, what is it? I mean, how, how high is it? How wide is it? How much does it weigh? What, what are its dimensions? Well, it's, it's not like the kind of thing. It's, it's not a thing. He said, it's, it's, a, it's not a thing, he said. It's a no thing. Say it a little faster. Nothing. It was a very powerful illustration. It is no thing. Chance is a no thing. It doesn't exist. It has no power. It can't do anything. Nothing happens by it. It has no instrumentality in the world, but by God's fatherly hand. Here's a little... If, if, if this sounds new or odd to you, and you have access to a concordance, or better yet, a, a computer concordance where you can just tell phrases and things to, to pop up. Uh, do like I did today. I said, uh, I narrowed my search to Jeremiah, and I told the computer, show me every verse with the words, I will, in it. I think there were 256. Now, I didn't have time to look at all to see how many were God. But the vast majority of them in Jeremiah are God. And the rest of the sentence, if you collect all those sentences, I will, if you believe the Bible, and you go and read the rest of those sentences, you will simply bow down and say, you do it all. You do it all. So we've seen a definition. Biblical texts on the upholding or sustaining providence from these texts here, we've seen that. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. God's providence over the unity of humanity such that the sinfulness of Adam is transmitted to all humans. We talked about 
three weeks ago, and then Jonathan Edwards' effort to show, in part at least, the wisdom and justice of this providence of God in the unity of humanity with Adam in his sin last week. And now we turn to biblical texts on the various parts of the creation over which God rules by his providence, and tonight, the inanimate parts. And then we'll turn to, we'll get closer and closer to human consciousness and human will, which creates the most theological problems. All right. Biblical texts on God's providence over inanimate objects, especially the weather and all its effects. Psalm 148, 7 through 8. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word. So the picture of the psalmist here is that when a stormy wind blows in Pensacola, Florida, or St. Thomas Island, it is fulfilling the word of God. And be wary of solving that problem by becoming a deist who says God started the world running, built into it some natural laws, stood back, and then watched it go haywire, out of control. Beware of solving problems that way. That does not accord with Scripture, number one, and it doesn't honor the Lord, number two. Fire, I think that means lightning, Hail, snow, clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Now, hang on to that one for a minute. That would include fog, I'm sure. Come back to that in a minute. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deeps, now, just stop there for a minute. Uh, it, it's a marvel to me. God does according to his will in the deeps. you have any idea what's going on down there? Not a clue. We don't have any idea what's going on down there. It's a world. It's just another world down there in the deeps. We've cataloged a few thousand species of weird fish, you know, but we don't have a clue. God rules the bottom of the Pacific Ocean for his good pleasure and not ours. He's just in charge of all those weird fish. They swim this way because he says to, and they swim that way because he says to. It's a marvel to me that God... He is ruling the top of mountain ranges in Asia that no man's ever been to. He's ruling the bottoms of oceans. He's ruling the outer reaches of space, all for his own good pleasure. And maybe the angels, maybe the angels are watching and enjoying. I always, I don't get it anymore. I used to say that Ranger Rick was my favorite theological journal. And uh, if I still got it, it probably still would be because Ranger Rick 
recorded, even though it had an evolutionary bias with a vengeance, it, it still recorded uh, oh, as many of those weird wonders down in the bottom of the sea and up on top of the mountains that humans stumbled upon. God, God is a real person and uh, gets real delights from the wonders that he creates and controls in the deeps where nobody else is watching. He causes vapors to ascend. There's fog again. From the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. I've always loved thunderstorms. I can never remember as a child being afraid of a thunderstorm. That's just weird. I don't know why, but I love thunderstorms. And the closer it cracks, the better. I love it. I, we were driving back from the airport um, when I picked up Noel on Monday night, and some of you would be able to answer why, but the, the, from, from across town to 24th Avenue, it was dark. Electricity was out. Anybody? What happened? You, some of you live down there. Okay, an insulator on 39th and Highway. Anyway, we were driving through there, and I thought, I just thought, how did I miss the storm? <laughs> I must have been lightning. Only lightning puts things out like this. And I was, shoot, I missed the storm. But I was in the city, so I, I couldn't imagine how I missed the storm. Who brings forth the wind from his treasure. So there's again, this wind here and this wind here is coming from his treasuries. And, and we mentioned this last week. Luke 8, 24. The disciples came to Jesus and woke him up on the sea when he was in the boat, sleeping. Sleeping. The, if you believe in the providence of God, that life is hard and God is good, God is good, you can sleep. You can sleep. Master, Master, we're perishing. And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped. And it became calm. God speaks. He speaks. He rebukes. His word. His word. So, you can't do this, and I can't do this, but if it's blowing too hard for right now, as he judges a wise way to blow, he just says to wind, slow down, slow down. Like a dog, just like a pet. Slow down. Stay, come, fetch, attack. God commands the wind. Job 37. Elihu talking. Remember I told you last week that uh, Elihu's a good guy in Job, I believe. He's not rebuked like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar in the last chapter. Here's what he has to say about the weather or the natural, natural world. For to the snow, God says, fall on the earth and to the downpour and the rain, be strong. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Let's stop there. That's the one I circled last week. said, can't unpack that in two minutes. What does that mean? 
In this context, the beast goes to its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm and out of the north the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture, he loads the thick clouds. He disperses the cloud of his lightning and it changes direction, turning around by his guidance. Oh, there's some great stories from the history of war as to how battles were won by shifting winds. That it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction, this is interesting commentary now, it's a little, there's a little theodicy here. Theodicy means the justifying of the ways of God to men, whether for correction or for his world or his earth or for kindness or mercy. He causes it to happen. So there's three, three possible answers to the why question of why it blows the way it blows and it rains the way it rains and it snows the way it snows. But let's go back up here. In this context, he seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. In this context, what does sealing the hand of man mean? Any suggestions? A, a seal? Controlling their actions? It, well, you'd need a control, I suppose, to do that, but what is there a specific thing that this control is performing here? Uh, what is, is a sealed hand? I mean, seal, a sealed hand, I presume, is a... A, a, a closed hand or a hand that can't I'm thinking out loud here as the direction I can't open and reach for anything a helpless hand yeah it can't hold on to anything it's the context to me seems to indicate that uh, if God controls snow and rain and wind, then the, the working hands of man that are his, his means of making a living and, and producing and getting are really very dependent on, I mean, he's a farmer, and this was an agrarian society, his hands are just going to go, shoo, if God holds rain back. It's, you know, you, there's two ways you can keep something out of a hand. One is take it away, and the other is lock up the hand. Yeah, you can try to grab it and you can't do it. Or you grab for it and it gets taken away. And I think that the, the, the sealing up of the hand here is simply the providence of God over man's productivity so that he, if he has eyes to see, will say, uh, God's doing it. God, I, I'm not God. I'm not God. As long as we think that our hands have control or can take into themselves everything they need and rule us and rule for us, we won't acknowledge God as the sovereign over the world. But if our hands are suddenly sealed, then we really have to come to terms with whether we are utterly dependent or not. 
That's the best I can do anyway with this verse. Anybody got another comment on it? Or insight into verse 7? It's, the reason it's so interesting is because it, it, uh, it shows that in all of this talk about weather and in all of God's providential activity in the weather, the issue is coming to know God, coming to know Him. Snow is meant to help you know God. Rain is meant to help you know God. Minnesota winters with blue, painful fingers are meant to help you know God. God, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Winter heavens, summer heavens, dark heavens, and everything under the heavens are meant to declare the glory of God. God is very eager for us to awaken. These flowers here are meant, I mean, just look at that. Just look at those flowers who thought up such amazing things. Mm -hmm. And what would be the meaning then? Hmm. So sealed in the sense of putting a seal of, of ownership, of identity upon... Yeah, huh, well, that's interesting. So the hands of man would be sealed in the sense of like, like a little Chiquita banana sticker on the hand, only it would say God's, um, God's creation. And I'm just trying to think now how this context of weather, he seals the hand of man, he puts on man's hand Maybe it winds up saying the same thing, that as man tries to produce and use his hands to, to provide for himself, God so overarchingly controls all things that this hand bears the stamp of, look, you better recognize you too are a creature, something like that. Mm-hmm. I did not check it. What, if, if I were going to take the time to do it, this we want to do a word study here, and that would be the natural step to, to, to ask your little computer thing to, to find all the seal, like this, with a little wild card there, and, uh, and have it turn up. And actually, it would be better to do it in Hebrew, which you can do, and then, and then see. And I didn't have time to do it. I didn't take the time. So I don't know uh, how much ambiguity there is in the word in the original. Somebody do that and bring back a bring back a word to us. Another another word or two about these last purpose clauses here. Why God? Why does God do this? Why does He guide the the lightning and the moisture and the clouds and the ice? And he says for for correction. So there's a rebuking, correcting thing going on for his land or his world and for kindness. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? I, I think, I'm uh, not sure what the difference between all these are, these three, what the difference is them, in them is. I wrote Cooper here in the margin because of a story that uh, Helen Glegg passed on to me from her devotional reading, I suppose from a, a little book called uh, Streams in the Valley. 
The poet, William Cooper, was subject to fits of depression. One day he ordered a cab and told the driver to take him to London Bridge. Soon a dense fog settled down upon the city. The cabbie wandered about for two hours. He thought he could find the way home. No, he admitted he was lost, and Cooper finally asked him if he thought he could find the way home. The cabbie thought that he could, and in another hour landed him at his door. When Cooper asked what the fare would be, the driver felt that he should not take anything since he had not gotten his fare to his destination, and Cooper insisted, saying, never mind that, you have saved my life. I was on my way to throw myself off the London Bridge. He then went into the house and wrote, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Now maybe that's an illustration of loving kindness. And it works the other way. It works the other way. The Titanic had another experience with fog. But at least you can say this, the biblical writers believe there is purpose in it all. That's the least you can say. Whether we understand how God is correcting, who, who, could, who could say what the ripple, the millions of ripple effects in 1,500 families from the perishing of the, what, thousand people on the Titanic. Who can say? Who can say what that did in world history? What kinds of correctings and loving kindness and blessings were coming? Who can say? Who can say? But there's no doubt where the fog comes from. Now this is God talking, not Elihu. And he's rebuking Job and querying him. And keep in mind as I read it that these are the kinds of questions that God asked Job that shut his mouth and caused him to despise himself and repent in dust and ashes and say, who can thwart your will? In chapter 42. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, Job? Tell me. Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? In other words, you, you don't have anything to do with where this comes from. You don't have a clue with how I do this. You've never been my counselor. You've, you are not in charge here, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Uh, let me read you. Um, where did I write it down here? There it is. Joshua chapter 10. Just to give you a living illustration uh, of, of what that verse just said. Joshua 10, 11. It's uh, Joshua fighting the Gibeonites as he's attempting to take over the promised land. And this is what it says.
The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and smote them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down great stones from heaven upon them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the men of Israel killed with the sword. I have reserved the hail for the time of distress and for the day of war and battle. Ten eleven, Joshua ten, eleven. Now I think I used as an illustration last year, sometime, the movie Henry V. How many saw Henry V? This Shakespearean, not many. Okay, so this will be. If you didn't remember me hearing it, you'll you'll hear the story. But Henry V as uh, a Shakespearean historical drama. And it tells the story of, of, of uh, King Harry, the English king, going over to France and fighting the French. And he was vastly outnumbered on this one particular battle, I think. Oh, the numbers were just incredibly imbalanced. And uh, one of the scenes has Harry kneeling down and beseeching God that his providence would have mercy upon them. And uh, the next day... The battle engages, and it's a bloody scene. And uh, as it ends, the British are triumphant. And if I remember correctly, the numbers were something like 25,000 French dead and a couple of dozen English dead. And Harry, King Harry, makes his soldiers swear that they will not boast in this victory because it is so manifestly a work of providence and a man will be shot with bow and arrow if he boasts. And the, the two scenes at the end of it just so gripped me. One was uh, the scene of him meeting with his soldiers, hearing the numbers and saying, God has wrought a great victory for Britain today. And the other was the song that the soldiers began to sing. This was the most powerful moment in the movie for me as they began to walk across the fields, just strewn with bodies and blood. They began to sing, Non nobis domine, non nobis sed tua nomine gloria. It's Psalm 115.5. This is a secular movie. No, no, be Gloria. Remember that? See? Powerful. Which means, not to us, O Lord. Not to us. No, no, not to us. But to your name give glory. Now, the theological significance for providence of this is a scene earlier during the battle. Here you've got these 
utterly outnumbered soldiers, and the way they set themselves up is that the bowmen are on their knees like this with their bows way behind the lines as the horses and the, and are, are smashing into others like this in those horrible battles that existed before there were nice clean bullets to shoot, you know, just hacking each other to pieces in those early wars. And, uh, and the bowmen could not see, could not see. They just knew there were enemies out there. And so the, the leader would say, I don't know what he said, but aim, pull, fire. And what you saw on the movie was it looked like 5,000 arrows, like rain, just go, and landing at random, random on the enemy. And uh, 25,000 died. Who, who decides where arrows land? Who decides? King Harry knew who decided. And he would not let any man boast of this victory. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. That's Proverbs 21, 31. I've got a biblical story like that here. Let me see if I can. There it is. Change my order here. Read you this. You remember this story from the Bible? I know Shakespeare might have made some of that up. There's some historical uh, root to it, but I don't know how much. But this is this is biblical. This is biblical arrows we're talking about here now. This is a story of of uh, Mac, the prophet Micaiah. Poor Micaiah, boy. To be a prophet of God in the Old Testament was a thankless task. I'll tell you. Reading Jeremiah, get yourself thrown in the mud. And this poor fellow, I don't know how long he stayed in prison. He may have rotted the rest of his life in prison. So here's an example of, of random arrow doing God's bidding. Micaiah, um, let's see if I can pick this, help give you the context here. Okay, let me give you the context. And the king of Judah are going to go up and do battle. And the king of Israel wants to hear some prophetic words about this. And so they get all the prophets together and all the prophets say, go up, go up, you can have the victory. And I say, fine. And then the king says, isn't there, isn't there any other prophets here? And, and the king, I forget which one, says, well, yeah, there's Micaiah, but he always prophesies evil against me. And so they call Micaiah. And Micaiah comes and says, go up, go up. And the king says, I know you're not telling the truth. Tell us what you really think. And he says, if you go up, you're going to die. The king of Israel said, uh, take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. And Micaiah said, if you return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. That's the last we hear of this poor fellow. There he goes to jail. It's like, it's like those poor guys who took an oath and say, we're not going to eat until we kill Paul. That's the last you hear of them. Well, they, they deserve to starve to death, but poor Micaiah, he didn't deserve to die in prison, and I don't know whether he did. But here's what happens at the battle. 
Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. This is not marksmanship here we're talking about. This is a stray arrow fulfilling whose prophecy? So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight for I am severely wounded and the battle raged that day and the king was propped up in the chariot in front of the Arameans and died at evening and the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Now that's another little story in itself which I won't the, the blood in the bottom of this chariot. He's dead. One prophecy is fulfilled. You're not coming back here alive. Kill me or not. And how does God fulfill that prophecy? This soldier from who knows where launches this arrow and God says, there's the spot. He's dead. Yes, God rules the flight of every arrow, including the four-by-fours that killed my mother on December 16, 1974, flying off the top of a VW van. I've never doubted that. I cannot worship a God who does not control the flight of four-by-fours, who can't cause a blowout ten minutes earlier. There's just a hundred ways he could have stopped it. So when I wept and wept and wept and wept, I never said, God, where were you? I said, save my daddy, because he was lacerated to pieces. And I said, thank you for letting me have her for 28 years. The rest of this story is that the blood in the bottom of this chariot goes back and they wash it down in the streets and the dogs lick it and and the comment is and thus was fulfilled the word of the Lord that was made way before that, that the dogs would lick the blood of this king. God, God said I'm going to I'm going to get this king in the battle way up there, but I've got another prophecy that his blood is going to be eaten in the streets of this city. So he will bleed in the chariot. They won't leave the chariot out there. They'll bring the chariot back to the city and wash it where I tell them to wash it. And now you're getting close to human will being controlled, which there's no way to understand the fulfillment of prophecy without it. So there's a story that's not written by Shakespeare, but by an inspired writer. Here's, uh, did I finish reading that? I'll stop. I want to make a comment from Matthew Henry here. Job, where's the way that light is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people? There you've got that. The biblical writers just now and then 
liking to talk about God doing things where nobody is. On a desert without a man in it. The first, you know the first time I ever saw this? was in a literature class with Clyde Kilby in 1968, spring of 68. And, of course, Clyde Kilby was a lover of the Romantic poets, and he quoted Wordsworth here that, I don't remember the line, but something like, many a flower is blooms unseen by man or something. And he just paused over this. He was reading Job to us day after day, saying, isn't it marvelous that God doing his own thing out there where nobody is? To satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of grass sprout, has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew from whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Here's what Matthew Henry comments. This is from his commentary on Job. And I really recommend that if you don't have a, a whole Bible commentary, Matthew Henry's 300 years old, and so it's not you know, up-to-date illustrations, but very few people, I, I don't know if there's a better whole Bible commentary, if you want something that's just reflective on the theological and practical meanings of all the passages of the Bible. It's in six volumes. Eric, do we carry one of those? Or not at the moment, but they're pretty expensive for us to invest in, but we, we could get them. Uh, the providence of God is to be acknowledged both by husbandmen in the fields, travelers upon the road, in, the, in, in, in every shower of rain, whether it does them a kindness or a diskindness. Surely you have like me on a beautiful Sunday afternoon wanted to take a picnic and so prayed for good weather knowing that there's a farmer somewhere praying against you <laughs> because he hasn't had rain for about three weeks. What does God do with those competing prayers? They're, they're competing prayers ascending to heaven all the time. Do you know that? People want things to happen that would jeopardize another person's, if they could only see it all, another person's well-being. We don't know it. God can sort that out. He knows what he's doing. He, gives, he doesn't give a stone to either one. You ask God for good weather on Sunday afternoon, he never gives you a stone in return. It may feel like stone if you're soaked and your bread's all wet and the day is shot from your plan. It's not a stone. It's not a stone. It is sin and folly to contend with God's providence in the weather. If he send the snow or rain, can we hinder them? Or shall we be angry at them? I feel rebuked in that. I remember here at church, back when Steve Roy was here, it was December 2nd or 3rd, it was... Four Sundays till the end of the year, and we probably needed, what, 30,000 bucks a Sunday back in those days to make it. And, and it was the only one of two Sundays in 15 years that we were totally unchurched, dechurched. I mean, it was over. The only people that showed up in this room that Sunday morning were those who walked from the neighborhood, and we had a great time together. But, but he, he killed one of our $30,000 Sundays. And, and we looked up that morning and said, 
we need $30,000 today and there's only 12 people here. <laughs> Why'd you do that? And Steve Roy wrote the Star article the next week and explained why. Namely, four Sundays was too many for God to get the glory that year. Just like Gideon, he called it the Gideon Sunday. Gideon, you've got to get rid of these 10,000 guys. I'm not going to get glory with 10,000 guys. I want 300 guys. I want three Sundays, not four Sundays. And we made it. And God got the glory. We really praised him that year. That's about 12 years ago, or I can't remember how many, 10. I, I said this room, didn't I? It wasn't this room. It was that, that other room. This is only four years old here. <clears throat> now, here is one of the most forthright, clear statements of the providence of God in your life that I know of in the Bible and whether is implied if not explicitly spoken about. This is James and he's concerned with people who get angry, get angry at providence, get angry at weather and other things like that. Now, come, you who say Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Well, what's wrong with that? You think, I'm going to go to Duluth and do a business deal tomorrow afternoon. You know, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it is you need to put a maybe in there. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor, just a vapor that appears for a little while. So, see that 70-year quarter of an inch over there and the two-second thing? This is the biblical foundation for that statement. Life, how long does a vapor last on a winter morning? <gasps> two seconds, maybe. Three seconds. Depending on how humid it is, I suppose. That's it. That's what our life is. Three seconds. You're just a vapor, appears for a little while, and then vanishes away. So instead, instead of talking like that, you ought to say, if we have good luck, or if the Lord wills, we will stay alive and do this or that. But as it is, the way you're talking... Boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. This is one of my spiritual concerns for teaching on the doctrine of providence. If you reject the doctrine of providence and presume to say, I'm going to Duluth, and it isn't dependent on God whether I have a heart attack in the car or whether fog causes me to run a, a red light, I'll tell you, I came so close to killing the whole staff one, one January, I still tremble thinking about it. You remember that, David, when we were going up there to Shalom House? And it was foggy, and I was going way too fast. I mean, I would have been guilty. I was probably doing 40 or something like that. You couldn't see 30 feet in front of you. And the next thing I saw was a red light, and I was through it. 
we were on Highway 10 or something. I, I didn't know there were any red lights within 20 miles of where I was. And I just thought, I, was all, it, I mean, it was almost over. Because I don't know whether a car went before me or after me. All I know is there was a red light about 10 feet in front of me, and then we were through it. And it was just because the Lord, it wasn't time for this whole staff to go down yet. It just wasn't time. But one of these days it'll be time, and it'll be, it'll be the Lord. So when, if you have to do a funeral for eight guys because we are all in a van heading somewhere and get hit by a train or a meteor falls on us or, or we do what that family over in Milwaukee did and run over a big thing and the thing explodes into flames and there's just eight cinder pieces up here, don't you dare get up in this pulpit and say, God wasn't in it or where was God? Or, I remember one funeral of a person I went to and, and the whole litany was built around encouraging anger in the congregation. Encouraging them to express anger. Don't do that. Not for me. And I know the rest of the staff would say, put your hands on your mouth, put your arms around our wives and say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the city will, will wonder and be amazed at your faith. I don't... You got any questions about this text right here? Is this clear or what? About God's rule over whether you get to Duluth or not. Whether you get home tonight. And all the ways you could not get there if Lord wills, we will will live. So there's there's one reason you may not get there. You die. So that that little phrase, if the Lord wills, we shall live. God takes all life, all life. When anybody dies, God took it. God's the one who gives and takes. Or short of death do this or that. So you might have a flat tire and be late for your appointment. So today, Brent Nelson came in out in Minnetonka at our pastor's prayer meeting for the last 15 minutes. He drove all the way from Minneapolis to Minnetonka for 15 minutes of prayer. Why? God, God intervened and did something. He had an emergency. I said, do you have a flat tire? He said, no, no, just, a, just an, a personal emergency. And he kept coming. He, he doesn't doubt that he did this or that. He did one thing and not another thing. So to me, this text here is uh, just overwhelmingly persuasive that uh, the rest of my life is in God's hands. You want to raise a question or comment on this text here before I... Where are we? We have five minutes. And I've got some hymns I want to show you. I want to show you how this truth that we're talking about here has made the saints sing. It hasn't made us mainly argue. I'm not into argument. I don't want to teach things to argue. I want to teach things to sing. I want you to be a singing people. And I want your songs to come from deep, rich roots. Okay? So let me, let me show you a few hymns as we close. There's a couple.
I think I've got three. Look page 52 in your hymnal out there. Um, I sing the mighty power. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes your glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from your throne. I, every time we sing that, I shudder, wondering on Sunday morning when it's not, you know, you, you people who are real, you're here because you want to be here, I presume, and you are interested in thinking and getting into the Word. Well, on Sunday, we got people all over the map spiritually, and I just wonder, do they believe what they're singing? That, that, that clouds come up and, and tempests blow by order from your throne? While all that borrows, it is not ours, borrows life from you, is ever in your care and everywhere that hmm, I may be, you, God, are present there. So the songs that are born out of this confidence are pretty rich. O worship the King, page 29 in the hymnal. O oh, tell of His might, O oh, sing of His grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, His chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form, and dark is His path on the wings of the storm. So the, these truths have moved people to write poems that, that God is in the storm. And One more. Oh... There it is. Actually, I had a bunch more things here. I forgot about. Yeah, three minutes. Look at quick. Um, I don't think there's anything different here than what we've seen already. Just more texts of the same. But let's stress these last two. If God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much? more do so for you, O men of little faith. Now, the reason I put that up there is because of this. God arrays the grass of the field. God did this orange right here. God did this white and that yellow. God did that. And that's more beautiful than anything Solomon ever wore because God is into beauty. little observation like that. That's what Jesus believes. So that he now has the wherewithal to clothe you. Look at this. This is probably the most thoroughgoing statement of total providence in all the Bible from Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Which means that at the casino out in Shakopee, Every time they go, God's deciding what comes up. God's deciding that. Every time you play, what do you play? Risk? What's your, what's your favorite dice game? Uh, every time you roll them, God decides. Now, if you believe that, <laughs> Tempts you to pray every time. <laughs> Noelle and I, we don't play any dice games. I don't know if she knows this, but we play Scrabble. Well, you know how you choose your letters in Scrabble. They're upside down. They're upside down. 
So you can't tell. But God knows what's under there. <laughs> and he guides my hands. So how do you pray when you play Scrabble? Scrabble. Or do you say, oh, it's not worth praying about. This is, this, you don't pray during times like this. You know what I say? Every, every time for the last 10 years, to myself, I don't say it out loud, I say, Lord, for the kingdom and for the family. <laughs> if it's good for her to win, make it a Q without a U. And if it's good for me to win this time, for the kingdom and for the family, then do it. For the kingdom and for the family. One last hymn and it will be done. Eternal Father, strong to save. Just, just the first, these two verses were added in 1954 so you could include airplanes. <laughs> but this was pre-airplane hymn. Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who bids the mighty ocean deep its own appointed limits keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. This is sung by women whose husbands were out fishing or sailors. And, oh, Christ, the Lord of hill and plain, o'er which our traffic runs amain by mountain pass or valley low, where'er the Lord thy children, wherever, Lord, thy children go, protect them by thy guarding hand from every peril on the land. So, um, we will talk a lot more about why one should pray things like that if, in fact, God rules it all. But let me just leave you with this. If God didn't rule it all, there'd be very little point in praying because He couldn't do anything about your prayers anyway. If you said, Lord... Please, my wife is flying from Tokyo to Los Angeles this afternoon. Would you hold the plane up? And if God said, I can't hold the plane up. I just turn that over to physical laws. I said, well, okay, I won't, I won't bother you with that next time. Only because God's involved in the world can we pray. Now, yeah, there are problems about if he's got plans for her death or life, what's point in praying but there are answers to those problems. There are answers in the Bible. But if you reject providence, you can close up shop on prayer. But I'm not, so let's pray. Lord, we believe that tonight people are going to get home because you will them to get home. And if any don't get home, it's because you have something better, better planned for your children. And I just pray that you'd grow the confidence in this church that when storms arise and winds blow, you're not giving a stone to your children. Down in Pensacola, billions of dollars worth of damage. St. Thomas, train wrecks, earthquakes. You've got this thing under control for your great name and for the good of your people and for the awakening of people to the fact that eternity is long and a two-second life or a 70-year life are pretty much the same. Give us a, an eternal perspective now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.